Just as we come to look at God's Word tonight, let's just bow our heads and focus our hearts. Uh, Father God, thank you for uh, the words and the thoughts that have come to us in the service so far. And now we look to you to speak into our hearts in a continued way as we see what your word has to speak to us. Amen. I have a little boy called Elliot who loves to watch movies, especially ones with great songs to join in with. One of his current favorites is one called The Hunchback of Notre Dame, or as he calls it, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And uh, whenever he watches and sings along with that, he absolutely adores it. And uh, I quite enjoy watching it as well. I like the music, I like the images, I like the reminders of a place that is very special to uh, Jane and myself, and that is Paris. Uh, Jane lived there for a year uh, just before we got married. And I love looking back at the images, particularly of the area around Notre Dame and the Ile de la Cité. And uh, I love looking at the images as are portrayed of Notre Dame Cathedral. And one of the fantastic aspects of that building is the Gallery of Kings. And what they have carved in the great facade at the front of that building are all 28 kings of Judah and of Israel, carved in, looking down on the thousands upon thousands of pilgrims, of worshippers, of tourists, as they pass in and out of that great building. And among them, bizarrely, is King Ahab. For all the evil he has been responsible, he still features in that number. So why do they have such a bad guy at the front of the house of God. Well, it's amazing how potent the story of Ahab has been over the ages. For France, right the way through from the Middle Ages, as uh, the cathedral has stood there for that time, right the way through to the current day, 2010, even here in UK and Ireland. Has there ever been a more intolerant, demanding era where Christian faith is ridiculed publicly, denounced as false and delusional, ignored as irrelevant, or even actively campaigned against by intellectuals and national leading voices. Ahab had an agenda to replace God with the worship of Baal. It suited him perfectly. It kept his powerful wife happy. It's a good thing, potentially. It distanced It distanced his nation from identifying with the other half of the 12 tribes of Israel down there in Judah. And it gave him license to pursue whatever lifestyle he chose and exercise power without restraint or accountability. The nation of Israel had gone along with the lead that he was given. There's very little evidence that I read about in 1 Kings showing dissent or a groundswell of support for God's standards and laws within that nation. Not many people were demonstrating a love for God, shown, and that was shown by almost all of Ahab's subjects. Ahab had instituted a strategic substitute for God in the form of this false god, Baal, a development that had grown over generations, the generations that had passed since the northern kingdom of Israel had split from Judah. And whenever you think about where we are today in our own culture, 
In a way, we are national heirs to an extended but failed search for our own God substitute. If you look right the way back through our history, you'll see from the Reformation in the 1600s, with the rediscovery of the individual's enormous significance before God, right the way through the Enlightenment of the 1700s, there was a turning away from God's revelation in the name of independent human reason. But then, swinging away from the shortcomings of that independent human reason, there starts to be uh, different searchings that go on right the way throughout the 19th century. Through the modernist era of scientific rationalism, communism, socialism, hippieism, so many things have come and gone. And now we find ourselves in an era that is labeled postmodern, when those ideas too have lost their meaning. Today, all the attempt to find meaning and God's substitutes have broken down. A lot of people that you talk to are unwilling to pin their colors to the mast and say that they believe in anything. And I was reading a little bit about this and came across uh, just a reminder of what John Lennon used to sing. Now, he's not too current, but I was watching Ferris Bueller the other night and he was being quoted by Ferris Bueller himself. So uh, John Lennon sings in one of his songs a song about God, which is now typical in its sentiments to that of many Western people's mindsets. He lists the idols in this song that he doesn't believe in. Magic, I Ching, the Bible, Tarot, Hitler, Jesus, Kennedy, Buddha, Mantra, Gita, Yoga, Kings, Elvis, Bob Dylan, and the Beatles, extend, ending the song by stating that he just believes in himself and in Yoko. The final line of the song, The Dream Is Over, represents Lenin's stance that the myth of the Beatles, that they were God, had come to an end. If there is a God, Lenin explains, we're all it. And even more currently, there's a, a writer, Canadian writer called Douglas Copeland. He's a writer whose novel first defined people currently aged 20 to 40 as Generation X. And that's probably a term you've heard about. And he published a book called Life After God, and even said on the jacket of the book, you are the first generation raised without religion. But two pages from the end of his book, he almost has the secret admission. Here is what he says. Now, here's my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you're in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God. I am sick and I can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I no longer seem to be capable of giving, to help me to be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me to love as I seem beyond being able to love. And Copeland, in terms of modern thinkers, doesn't stand alone in this. The independent newspaper reported not too long ago a little editorial where it says, in its it is countries where faith is weak and dwindling like ours that are full of fear and emptiness. And they quote, and they quote Courtney Love, who is the, the widow of the iconic 1990s grunge rock singer Kurt Cobain. 
and she is quoted as yelling at one of her New York audiences, I'm really sick of this bleeping agnostic decade. Find something to believe in. Adding to an interview later, she said that she hoped by the time her daughter, drew, her daughter grew up, drugs are not going to be chic anymore. I pray religion, discipline, certain traditions will be cool. Just like in Ahab's Israel, for us today, it can be hard to believe in God. The whole development of postmodernity is the denial of our identity and purpose. It doubts about love and truth and ethics, makes it psychologically difficult for us to think about commitments to faith, to relationships, to causes. Don't worry, be happy. It's almost like a theme tune for postmodernism. There is no God now, so all that exists is image upon image, surface upon surface. There are no truths worth choosing, no passions uncorroded by irony, no causes worth stepping out of line for. That's the era that we're living in. And in a way, Ahab was falling straight into the same sorts of mindsets. He and his whole nation have put up an alternative to God, and yet time after time, it was found to be completely wanting. And Ahab certainly is not worrying about the real God. It's been three years, whenever we start our reading, since Ahab conspired with Jezebel to murder Naboth and steal his land. He had repented, however, when Elijah had confronted him with his sins. And God had shown amazing mercy and restraint. Now, in a way, I could hardly believe it when I read that passage at the end of chapter 21, that God had seen Ahab's repentance and had changed his mind about destroying him. It was one of those amazing, amazing acts of grace that the Bible talks about. And it sort of blew my mind a bit. And then I was reminded again, as Christoph spoke this morning, just about that's who the God is that we serve. That is our God, a God of grace, a God that showed the same type of grace in the, in the story of Peter after his denial. It's an image of God's mercy that gives me hope and encouragement as I present my own sins of my heart and failures of my life to God through Jesus. And as we look into the chapter 22 where we're focusing on tonight, it even seems as if Ahab, three years later, is seeking to fight for God. Was Ahab, in making an alliance with Judah's king Jehoshaphat, trying to embrace the true faith, trying to battle for the restoration of this city called Ramoth-Gilead? And it had been a place, a city, that Joshua had denoted as being a city of grace and refuge for people who were accused of murder, a place set apart for them to flee to. So it was an important place, an important site, and here is Ahab choosing to claim it back for the nation of God. 
So what was his motivation for going to war? That's a very potent question as we sit through week after week of the Chilcot Inquiry, thinking about our own nation's motivation for going to war in Iraq. What was the motivation of King Ahab? Well, I do not think, despite maybe the superficial look of it, that it was a commendable attempt to restore the nation of Israel. Rather, and as we see the story unfold, it is quite clear that Ahab is using it as a cynical opportunity to extend his own power and wealth. King Ben-Hadad was his enemy, and he had been defeated and spared against God's wishes by Ahab earlier on in the book of First Kings. And he had signed a treaty, and under that treaty he should have returned this city to Israel, but he has reneged on that promise. King Jehoshaphat, he's up from Judah, and he's having a bit of a conference with Ahab. He's fated. He's given lots of great hospitality. And Ahab takes the opportunity to take Jehoshaphat and tell him and ask him to join with him in this fight against Ben-Hadad. Jehoshaphat is a God-fearing king, but he finds himself in this really sticky situation of being married to Ahab's daughter and now, as a vassal of Ahab, being required to make war and go to fight against Ben-Hadad with Ahab. Here's what it says in verse 4. So he asked Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight against Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, First seek the counsel of the Lord. How important is it to hear the real God speak? It seems that it is important to Jehoshaphat. And he really puts himself on the line here and asks Ahab to seek God for his guidance. How much do we value the words of God for our lives. We've all had a Bible maybe for years. We've all sat in church, maybe YF, maybe BB, SU, Sunday school, mission teams. Year on year, we've heard God's words spoken into our lives. Spoken words maybe about bitterness or about love or faithfulness or giving or even our futures. But have we allowed that message to drift or to be squeezed out or even forced out of our minds and never really acted on those words? If that is the case, we are walking in Ahab's shoes. We are walking in the same direction of his attitudes and actions and we are mimicking his motivations. Thankfully, Jehoshaphat is not prepared to take his country to war until he has heard God's perspective on the venture. It's interesting, he says to Ahab, first seek the counsel of the Lord. 
And Ahab appears to do just that. And we read in verses 10 to 12 about Ahab's 400 prophets that he has primed and ready just for this particular occasion. So in verse 10 it says, Dressed in the royal robes, the kings of Israel and uh, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria. With all the prophets, all 400 of them, prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Kenah, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans till they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying exactly the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious. They said, For the Lord, he will give it into the king's hands. It's quite an amazing picture. There he is, um, sitting there in his big throne beside the king of Judah. And here he is asking for God's word into the situation. But Ahab has made a cunning substitution. Rather than listening to the authentic word of God, he has put his own yes men in place. Can we also be guilty of substituting God's voice? Do we really believe that what God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit know what is best for us to do Do we really believe that? Can it be that we have repetitively and willfully ignored the word of God into our lives? Can it be that we love comfort and security too much to take risks by doing what God says? Some of us here may even love to listen but never actually follow and become doers of God's word. And the Bible now goes on to paint a powerful and contrasting picture of these two types of scenarios. Two men with two radically different approaches to the word of God. A faithful prophet, Micaiah, versus an unfaithful king, King Ahab. Ahab had built up this entourage of 400 prophets And he had done well because previously in the book of Kings, 450 prophets of Baal, prophets of Ahab and Jezebel, had been killed by Elijah. And Elijah, interestingly, is not even mentioned in this whole uh, passage at all. Such was the hatred Ahab obviously had for Elijah. He's not even brought in to the picture. So here Ahab had replaced the 450 prophets, and now had 400 new ones. And there they are, going for it, telling Ahab exactly what he wanted to hear. And it's an amazing picture that you get there of the chief prophet getting a little bit of imagery like this, a hat with horns built onto it, and using that to mimic the goring of his enemies saying that God would be in the whole venture. Micaiah was the true prophet. He was known by King Jehoshaphat of Israel. He organized his life around the job of telling the truth 
of the Word of God, even though it made him very unpopular. In fact, it looks as if, as you read the passage, he could easily have actually been in jail even before it came to the point of being required to go and see Ahab. He was so easily summoned by Ahab, and it seems to read that he's being sent back to that jail at the end of this encounter. So Micaiah is dragged out of prison, and while he has been there, he's clearly not been moping in a resentful state of self-pity and anger. He hasn't been angry at God that God has dealt him such a bum deal in his life. Rather, he has been listening for God speaking to him, and as a result, he's been given a powerful vision of the future for King Ahab. And as 400 of Ahab's yes-men are dancing outside, speaking as one voice, out comes Micaiah. On his way to prophesy to Ahab, there's a message sent to him, telling him what the word is that he should be giving, saying, all the rest of the prophets, they're saying, yes, go for it for war. That is the word that you should be giving as well. And here's what it says. In verse 15, when he arrived, the king asked Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead or shall I refrain? And you can just hear the sarcasm, maybe the irony in the way that Micaiah responds to that question. Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. And even King Ahab cannot buy the right answer, the yes answer, the answer that he is giving. And he says, how many times must I make you swear to tell nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And this is Micaiah's cue, and he doesn't miss the mark. Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd, And the Lord said, these people have no master, let each one go home in peace. Ahab knows that this is the real message, but he tries to save face. Didn't I tell you that he never prophesied anything good about me, but only bad, he says to Jehoshaphat. But Micaiah isn't finished yet. He goes on and says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing round him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means? The Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. It's a pretty brutal message, and it's a very clear message that Micaiah is giving to Ahab. He speaks of God enthroned in glory with the whole host of heaven gathered, putting Ahab and Jehoshaphat into their their places. And considering the future of the nation of Israel and its evil king, 
lying spirits and agents of evil appear before God and are being used to deliver false messages to the 400 prophets and encourage Ahab to pursue his agenda of battling for Ramoth Gilead. Now, if you were in Ahab's shoes, what would you have done now? What would you have done? He's supposed to have changed. He's supposed to be doing God's will. So he has a choice. Believe God's word, swallow his pride, maybe lose face with his people. The people who are watching the show with Jehoshaphat and the up-and-coming king, the up-and-coming king Jehoshaphat of Judah. And they're all gathered round, all looking to see this big spectacle. Can he face losing credibility with them? Or the other choice, he can reject Micaiah's message, denounce Micaiah as being a fraud, save his face, and hope to build on his own power and influence. Well, that second choice is exactly what Ahab does. Ahab chose to be angry, and instead of listening to the truth, he has a little tantrum. He orders Micaiah back to prison on meager rations of bread and water, presumably to deal with him when he returns after Jehoshaphat goes off the scene. The cost to Micaiah of speaking the truth of God's word was huge. The same sort of cost that confronts huge numbers of believers across the globe today. But he was faithful, faithful and confident that God's word was more potent than the peril he was in. He states clearly, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. No compromise. A public testimony of the authentic God he has chosen to serve. Total faith that he can trust God beyond his circumstances. His comfort in adversity was that same God. That comfort could only come directly from the Lord. How do we measure up to Micaiah? How are we praying and supporting his descendants in the persecuted church? Are we standing in the gap with them, using our open-door prayer diaries to pray for them? Are we giving? Are we thinking about them? Are we petitioning on their behalf? What a challenge this should be to be our spiritual discipline. And in making his choice, so starts the end game for Ahab. How many chances had God given him? Now was the day of judgment for him. So what does Ahab do? Well, again, it's an incredible story. It just seems absolutely ridiculous. Ahab finds a solution to the problem he's facing, and he puts on one of these. A silly disguise. Somehow he thinks that by dressing up in a different outfit, God and God's judgment will somehow not recognize him. 
Now, how ridiculous is that? But that is exactly what he does. This is the God that has sent three years of drought on Israel during Ahab's reign. The same God who had destroyed 450 prophets of Baal. The same God who had sent fire from heaven. The same God who destroyed the armies of Ben-Hadad. And the same God who had seen Ahab's secret sin of murdering, conspiring to murder Naboth. Somehow, Ahab thinks he can escape judgment by sending Jehoshaphat into battle dressed as a king while he fights incognito. The battle begins. Ben-Hadad's men chase Jehoshaphat, but realize it's not Ahab and turn back. And if you read Second Chronicles, they tell, they tell this story as well. And that passage in Second Chronicles 18.31 makes it clear that as Jehoshaphat cries out, he doesn't cry out in some way, help me, or don't chase me, I'm not Ahab. Rather, it makes it clear that he's crying out to the Lord. And the Lord heard Jehoshaphat's cry and rescued him. Meanwhile, a random arrow is fired in the battle and it hits the king of Israel between the section of his armor. And the king tells his chariot driver, wheel around, get me out of here, I've been wounded. And the battle rages all day long. And eventually, King Ahab bleeds to death. And with his death, the army of Israel flees. This was the end for Ahab. His consistent rejection of God's voice. He thought he could outwit God's judgment by putting on a disguise and going ahead with the plan that he had wanted to do all along and ends up being shot by a random arrow and bleeding to death. It says in verse 37, So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried him there. They washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria where the prostitutes bathed. And the dogs licked up his blood as the word of the Lord had declared. That word of the Lord that he's talking about there is the judgment that had come on Ahab as a result of his murder of Naboth. It's the end for Ahab. His memorial was to be as a dog's dinner, just as Elijah had prophesied. Isaiah 40 reminds us, all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. Ahab had presided over a time of economic prosperity in Israel talks about at the end of the chapter the glorious buildings with ivory that he had put together. The evil glory of Ahab, however, had passed. And here also in Isaiah 40 is the contrast. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Those who hope in the Lord 
will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And what happened to Jehoshaphat? Well, after the close escape at Ramoth Gilead, Jehoshaphat rededicated himself to the spiritual reform of Judah. And in contrast to Ahab, he spread God's word. It says he went out among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. And that's in Second Chronicles 19, verse 4. So at the end of the story of Ahab, what should be our response? Well, as reading through this story, I was really, really compelled to think about how important it is to examine our lives and identify, then root out those things that we have constructed as God substitutes. We need to recognize the grace that is available to us, the grace of Jesus, as Christoph was reminding us this morning, that same grace offered to Peter after failure is offered to us. So as we stand before God, the same amazing state of grace covers us. Nothing of our own worth, but everything of Jesus' worth and sacrifice, covering our failures and sin when we swallow our pride and repent. We must put ourselves under the influence of God's words. We have a faithful pastor here in Kirkpatrick, sort of our own Micaiah, seeking to bring God's word faithfully every Sunday. Are we arriving into church ready to listen and vitally to act on the message? If we're not willing to act on that message, are we any different to Ahab, really? And will our spiritual destiny be any better? How many of us practice, in practice, will choose to begin each of our days, not with the Word of God coming into our lives, but with the words of Chris Evans or Chris Moyles, the wisdom of Montel Williams, through our iPods, Kasabian, or the wisdom and words of Jay-Z. Whose words will we begin our days with and listen to? Last Saturday, I had the privilege of attending a service of thanksgiving for a guy here from Belfast, a guy called William Fitch, a local guy who listened for the Word of God. And the testimonies of that service proved again and again, not only was he listening, he was acting on it. The legacy of that life was incredible. And this weekend, with the sad news of Derek Bingham also dying, again, there's another great man, a man from our city, a man whose life we can look at and see the legacy of a life well lived for the Lord. What type of legacy are we crafting into our own lives? We have been exhorted to get into God's Word and read our Bibles. How are we doing listening to God's Word coming into our hearts? 
How are we doing acting on those words that we hear? Let us resolve to remember the lessons of Ahab's life, to tune into our modern Elijahs and Micaiahs, and to act on God's word as it comes to us. Amen. We're going to finish our service this evening by uh, singing again from the words of really quite a profound hymn, Lord, speak to me that I may speak. Lead me, Lord, that I may lead. Oh, teach me, Lord, that I may teach. Oh, use me, Lord, use even me.